Hello everybody, my name's Debbie Evans from UK Column. I'm the nursing correspondent and today I am both honoured and delighted to be able to welcome a friend. I can actually call Eleanor Vlyka, I believe a friend of mine now. We've been in contact for some while. Eleanor is a qualified nurse. She's extremely experienced and to be honest, if ever I'm poorly, it would be Eleanor that I would want to nurse me. And oh, Eleanor has a huge story to tell. And yes, Eleanor, please welcome. Um, I want to hand over to you for you to introduce yourself and to tell us why we're here today and why we've met after all these months of, of talking behind the scenes. So we're just going to have a chat as though it was just nobody was watching. It's just you and I. So Eleanor, welcome. Thank you very much, Debbie, for letting me, allowing me to tell my story. Um, yeah, I am a nurse in uh, UK since 2014. I arrived here in 2013. Um, Prior to that, I worked in Italy and Spain, and I worked in my country as a nurse. Um, yeah, it's. I I just want to tell the story of my soulmate, my my the man I loved, how I lost the man I loved, um, in Trellis Hospital last year uh, during COVID. Do Eleanor for people that are uh, are watching now, um, Eleanor's in Cornwall. And she lost her soulmate um, in tragic circumstances. And Eleanor's going to take us through the journey that she went through with her soulmate. So, Eleanor, please do tell us what happened. Um, 26th of October 2021, last year, she will wake up at six o'clock in the morning, shortness of breath. Um, prior of that, she had a stroke. So, he was recovering very well from uh, the stroke he, he suffered. He was independent, going up and down to the toilet, independent to make himself a cup of tea. He was just, his short memory was affected, but he was coming back even that now. So 26th of October, he wake up, shortness of breath, and I called the GP, I stayed with him, and I tried to, you know, as a nurse, you try your best to help the man you love in two hours until I was able to call uh, the GPs. I did make an appointment for him, and the appointment was four o'clock in the evening. So I did get scared because he was very, he, he, his breathing was very erratic now, and very he, he started to be very clammy. He didn't have temperature or something like that. But his breathing really worried me, so I called an ambulance, and the ambulance arrived, and he was taken to the hospital. I was not allowed to go with him because of COVID and because um, the ambulance crew said he's probably COVID. So I was in contact with him and I was advised to um, isolate for 10 days. So I called his sister Gail and I called his daughter Becky, which they follow to the hospital. She had arrived to the hospital around 12 o'clock. I had a phone call from the A&E doctor asking me about if I want Stuart to be resuscitated. This really, really shocked me and scared me. I said, he's 54. 
And of course, I want to be, I want everything for him. I want, I want him alive. I want him to live. And also, they asked me, they told me uh, he's going to be put on a ventilator, which I totally deny. I said, no, you're not going to put him on ventilator. You're not going to give him Idazalan because until tomorrow morning, he's going to be dead. So I, I start fighting for his treatment and I start fighting for his care since that since that moment. Uh, he he was doing all right in A and E. Um, his saturation started to went go up. He went with saturation between 75 80. Um, his saturation started to be go up and his saturation was 99. It's everything recorded what I'm saying now in his notes. I have two set of notes, thousand pages of notes I have. Um, so by eight o'clock that day, 26th of October, he was uh, transferred to a respiratory ward in Trellisk Hospital. Um, immediately when he got there, the nurses there, they start to administrate himidazolam again from his notes. I know that. We, we fight and we told them, we, we told them in verbally and in writing, we do not want midazolam and morphine for Stuart. In 20, uh, 27, next day, he was seen by the consultant and by the medical team. Um, on the respiratory ward, and he was put end of life care, and on a syringe driver. He was. They were pushing for syringe driver, and I said no syringe driver, no end of life care, antibiotics, nebulizers, and send him home. I'm going to take care of him. But no, they didn't do that. They put in. Uh, they did put a catheter. Stuart was able to walk up and down to the toilet. They put a catheter. I don't understand why, not even today. And they start to, they put a DNAR in place, not for resuscitation. They stop all his chronic medication. Stuart was, uh, after his stroke, on 40 milligrams of citalopram, which was stopped in the 27th of October by the medical team. He was literally put on end-of-life care. Uh, the diagnosis and the logic between the, uh, this end-of-life care was COVID uh, unvaccinated. On, on the diagnosis is written unvaccinated. Um, the minute they stop his medication, chronic medication, Stuart start to be very, very poorly. He was now for a year on 40 milligrams of uh, citalopram and just stop this tablet just like that you need six months to winding down this this medication you cannot just stop this antidepressive just like that so he start to hallucinate he start to have uh, flu-like symptoms he start he start to be be very very poorly so they have put this on covid i want to mention steward had one test, PCR test, which came back ne negative in A&E. And they have done another one, another PCR test, which came back positive. But in his notes, 
is no mention how many cycles this uh, PCR test they've been done. So we don't know if Stuart really had COVID or not, because we know now if you go up probably 45 uh, cycles, the, the test is uh, false positive. Um, so we don't know he died of COVID or not, because we don't know the PCR test was uh, was false positive or not. Sorry, Eleanor, yeah. if I can just interject there, because I think that's really a very important point, and it's something that we've been highlighting for a long time, in yeah. that the cycles of the PCR tests and the false positives, etc., have been they're unreliable i mean they were never designed for that so mm. um, and i think it's also very important to also highlight that as you've just said there that stuart was unvaccinated and that his medication the citalopram the antidepressant that he was on because i i know that he'd had a stroke and and i know too that but he he was he he was leading a really a really good life but he'd been a bit low and he'd been on citalopram for a while and some of the side effects as you've quite rightly said and i think it's important to highlight that if someone is taken off citalopram uh, quickly they will develop um, or can develop some serious adverse reactions which can resemble flu-like symptoms yeah. which can resemble confusion and so what we're saying is that um, in Stuart's case, it would appear that he was, was he taken off all of his drugs when he was admitted to hospital and they yes. put him on end of life care? And were yes. you as a family consulted about this end of life care? No, Eleanor. No, nothing. Nothing. We've, all the decisions they've been taken, they've been taken by the medical team on Trillisk Hospital. So we fight and we fight. He was put in a meal by mouth on, on CPAP. He was not fed for 11 days. He had no food. I was fighting and fighting for him to have at least some IV fluids. So 11 days of starvation, 11 days on false imprisonment against his will, because she will try to escape four times from the hospital. And is it in, in his notes is written four people pinned him down on the bed and sedate him because he tried to escape. The clothes was taken away from him. I had his uh, knickers cut. I think they cut them with the scissors and kept naked. And the catheter bag was tied up on the bed with gauze. So every time when my shoe was trying to get out from the bed, and get out from the ward, they will pull him from his, can you imagine that? Pull him from his bladder, that catheter. So they've done I'm, everything I'm they could terrified. to, it's, it's horrifying what happened with him. And everything is what I am telling you now, I find out after I had his notes. It was very difficult for me. To go to and you were to watching all the time, you notes. were communicating with Stuart by Zoom, um, all the time yes. because, of course, yes. you were isolated, so you yeah. were at home and you were having to speak to him over a screen and taking yeah. and you were taking screenshots as well, weren't you? Of, of yeah. all of the yeah. uh monitors, yeah. I mean, yes. I cannot even begin to think how you must have felt. Was anybody allowed to? 
visits in the hospital? Did anybody get in? So his family is unvaccinated. His sisters, his daughters, they are unvaccinated. They didn't trust his job, mainly because of me. So they have been allowed, but when we start talking, they stop us to go there. So we fight and we fight to go and see him. We fight and we fight to go and take some food to him because he was crying. He's hungry. So Gail was taking uh, cubes of cheese and bananas to him uh, every time she had a chance or give him a cup of tea. Um, it's, it's beyond beyond imagination what they have done to my steward. It's beyond imagination, beyond evil, beyond evil what they have done to him. So we fight and we fight. They, they gave him all the medication, like experimental drugs, uh, like remdesivir, mono, monoclonal antibody, ronoprev, everything is in his notes. So they have tried everything on him. They used him as a guinea pig. You see, I, I'm not sure today Stuart had all his organs because, as you know, he died 6th of November and the funeral was third, 23rd of March this year because we try and we try for a post-mortem, but we didn't manage and we reported this as a crime to the police. But they have a meeting all together, coroners, police, CQC, and the outcome is my steward had outstanding care in Trelisk Hospital. I have an email uh, regarding this. So 11 days of torture, false imprisonment, kept in a hospital bed against his will, and then put to death like a dog. What can I say? I'm sorry I'm saying this, but this is what happened the 6th of November when I had a phone call. Um, I need to go there at midnight because he's dying. This is what happened. So I tried to speak with the doctors and I tried to, I said, one. I think was the fourth when I said, that's it, I'm coming in and I'm going to get him home. I'm going to take him out from the hospital. Um, it was a Zoom of a face of FaceTime on my phone with the doctor, the doctor there and uh, the nurses, and I was threatened, uh, I'm going to be uh, arrested, I'm going to be deported, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to lose my pin, and I'm never going to work as a nurse in this country. So they tried everything to keep me away from him. I, I've, I fight for him, and I fight for him, but I couldn't save him. They've been, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to describe what happened. Even uh, today, I don't understand how these people can do stuff like that, can do, and how these people, they can sleep at night. How you can sleep at night knowing you killed somebody. Stuart has five grandchildren, three daughters. We had, we've been happy. We had, yes, he had a show, but we still enjoy life. He was coming back. He was recovering very well his daughter and his grandchildren was everything for him absolutely everything we have his grandchildren's 
needing now um, some, uh, somebody to talk with, you know, because they are very depressed every time when they are coming and Pops is not here. You know, they are very, we have people on school talking with them about what and everybody's suffering. This is a very, very, this is, this is horrible for us. I, I can't even describe how, what the emptiness he left this man in our lives because he was such an amazing, beautiful, caring, wild soul, a joker, all the time joking, all the time full of life. He was the soul of the party everywhere we went. So it's just, it's emptiness. It's just emptiness now. It's, it's, it's horrible. Did you manage to get any time with Stuart before he passed? No. I was not allowed to. Was no. anyone with him when he passed? I had a phone call and I drive to Trilisk. They allow me to go and get in the ward. When I get there, my sure was in a coma, which I realize now was a midazolam induced coma. And his saturation was 40. And I was watching the monitors. And uh, I just start to cuddle him and kissing him and telling him how much I love him. I'm so sorry. Eleanor, take a moment. Take a moment. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Just take a couple of minutes, okay? Just take a couple of minutes out. Just and, have a drink. Have a drink. It's okay. And his saturation started to go up to 70, which I realize now he's still fighting. He was still fighting for his life. So it was a junior doctor, a lady junior doctor. She came and she saw me. She knew I am a nurse. So she came and she saw me. I am watching the monitors. And she turned off the monitors. A couple of minutes later, a nurse came with it was my, me cuddling from one side and his sister Gail cuddling him from the, from the other side. And uh, a nurse came two minutes later with a blue trail with five syringes, 10 millisilier syringes on that blue trail. And she pushed two of those syringes up his cannula. He took three more breaths in my arms and he died. So she literally killed him in my, well, I was holding him in my arms, me and his sister, and we couldn't save him. This, so evil, they are these people, they can kill your loved ones while you're holding him or holding her. And it's important to say too here, isn't it, Eleanor, that you specifically said to the hospital, do not give him Dazlam. You did not yes. want Medaslam. Tell us a bit now, because you've since since his passing, and um, since you've had time to request his medical records, you've received thousands. I've I've seen the, the pile of notes that you've received, and you've been yes. looking back, haven't you, through his drug chart? Tell us yes. what you've witnessed and what I've witnessed too with my very own eyes. 
in what you've seen with regards to midazolam and morphine combinations? So what happened in the 4th of November, I had a phone call from the consultant and he told me Stuart tried to escape again last night. A man who was deemed to be immobile, yeah? He get out of the bed and try to walk out the door. And um, he said he had 54 milligrams of midazolam in that night. Yeah? So I said to doctor, that doctor, I'm not going to say his name, I said, you need to take out midazolam from his medical, from his uh, medication, because otherwise the nurse, the night nurse will come. She's going to want an easy night, yeah, and she is going to overdose him and kill him. He didn't. So to save your life was in this man's hands, and he didn't act. He left the midazolam and morphine in his medical chart, in his medication, and Stuart was killed in the end because Stuart had, uh, in 10 hours when he died, uh, if you see his medical notes, his medication chart, Stuart had 57.5 milligrams of midazolam in 10 hours plus morphine. And I think to Eleanor, let's, let's just explain, let's explain just very quickly to viewers and listeners that might not know or have heard of midazolam and morphine is that midazolam is a benzodiazepine and morphine yeah. is an opioid. And the, the thing with this combination of drugs is that it slows down the respiration. Really? So it's not something, yeah, and it's not something that you or I as old school nurses would be seen to be doing. If somebody has a respiratorial illness, the last thing you want to do is depress their respirations anymore. And yes. I believe that the maximum amount of midazolam, was it um, 60 milligrams in 24 hours? Yes. Is that correct, Eleanor? Even, and even, you'd calculated even, that Stuart had 54 in 10 hours. Is that correct? 57.5. 57.5 in one night shift. 57.5 yeah. in 10 hours. Plus the morphine. Plus the morphine. In top of everything. In Bear in mind, in a lethal syringe for the inmates in America, they are using 10 milligrams, Debbie. Yeah? 10 milligrams of midazolam is enough to kill five milligrams of midazolam for somebody who is naive to this drug is enough to kill a person my issue had 57.5 of midazolam and plus the and we know last two injections sorry, i was going to just remind people that the government have stockpiled or had stockpiled midazolam and that it was mentioned in um, in parliament of how much midazolam mm. we had and we were reassured that we had got plenty and clearly yes. um, sadly you know you are one of many people that are reporting that midazolam and morphine was used a lot during the lockdown and especially when families weren't able to be near to their loved ones and to monitor what was going on 
but the yeah. alarming thing I think with you is that you made a specific request to the hospital to remove the midazolam and morphine yes. because Stuart had actually been improving. He'd been on antibiotics and yes. he'd been improving. And then all of a sudden it just changed. What, what suddenly changed? When was the tipping point, do you think? I think the tipping point was because you give, when, when you administrate to somebody so much midazolam and morphine over a couple of days, few days, the kidney function will start to decrease. So the tipping point was around the 3rd of November, 4th of November, from what I can gather from his notes, when you see the kidney function going down. Yeah. So I think because the kidney function was going down, Stuart was not excreting anymore the midazolam from his body, and he was just building up, building up the markers in his blood. So I think the tipping point was that, yeah from starting on the 3rd to the 4th. And plus, his, his, because his kidney function was going down, his lungs were starting to build up water. So he was full of fluid because I, was, I put my head on his chest and I, when I was there and I, was, I couldn't hear the, the bubbling in his chest. It was full of fluid in his lungs because of the kidney function. And you can see from because he had so much blood test done and you can see how midazolam actually stopped his kidneys and yeah not even on you it's very interesting because not even on his uh, x-ray you cannot say you had covid the x-ray are inconclusive so how do we know you had covid and die of covid and you know eleanor throughout his stay in hospital what i found even more shocking was the fact that he wasn't being fed and he was yes, being neglected essentially um and yeah. i've i've heard people saying that they've when they have been with their loved ones trying to feed them they've been told off for removing a mask mm. or trying to yeah. trying to actually put food in their mouth did that happen to you as well yes with his sister and his daughter yeah, with the daughters, yeah, they've not been allowed. And bear in mind, you cannot put a CPAP with 100% oxygen on somebody who has COPD. Sure was a smoker. So you need to watch the oxygen saturation being between 88 and 92 for somebody who has COPD. So you cannot just go with the oxygen just like that because you, you destroy that person's lungs. So you need to have some knowledge when you're working on, on this ward. But I don't, I think that, I I don't know, with the new with the new training everything online, you watch a video and then you answer ten questions in the end. There's no training to work, you know and work with the CPAP or work with a, you know, you do, do you understand what I say? Eleanor, I was just I was just gonna say as from a nursing point of view, you and I were trained in completely different ways we were trained yeah. to hold hands we were trained in human yeah. contact um and now we seem to be seeing a complete influx well an exodus of um the old school if you like trained nurses and doctors um before possibly project 2000 the new training for nurses came in for sure and we're seeing an exodus of this these the old school and an influx of of um 
unqualified people yes. um, that actually don't know they don't know what we know um so for no. us walking onto a ward and seeing people being given respiratory depressants when they've got respiratory illness is completely alien and yet to them this this younger generation we know within the medical within the medical industry at the moment and within medical professionals we have noctors and we have associate physicians so we don't even know really who we're talking to and you, 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 you've just touched on something very interesting that I really do want to sort of move on to. But before we move on to where we are today, I know that shortly after Stuart passed, you carried on fighting. You know, you didn't stop, did you? Because you wanted yeah. answers even then. And have you got any further with the police or where is the situation now with regards to Stuart? Because I believe you... You had to sort of, you had to go ahead with the funeral for, for many reasons. Um, but where are you now with regards to that? Um, the coroner's refused to do a post-mortem, as you know. We've been together in this fight. Um, they said Stuart had an outstanding care in Trellisk Hospital. They refused to do a post-mortem. Actually, they, they, uh, because he went for so long and his body was is still in Trelisk in a freezer, they threatened me they're gonna cremate him, cremate him in, in, uh, I have everything recorded on my phone, the conversation from the coroner office, how they are threatening me they're gonna cremate him in Trelisk themselves. So, in the end, in the end, we wanted a funeral for Stuart. I can prove from his notes he didn't have COVID and he died of midazolam and morphine overdose. So I don't really need it. I realize actually just let him rest, you know, because there are two sets of notes and we can prove from there what happened. There's no need for his body to be just left there. So I had a investigation was done by the police and by the CQC and by the hospital manage managers and they concluded Stuart had outstanding care and everything was done properly for him, even though he was starved for 11 days, hold against his will. Um, and tortured. I, 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 I say torture because we know Nidazalam is torture, isn't it? It's like waterboarding. So, yeah, outstanding care in Trellisk Hospital. And we know too, Eleanor, for people that may not, um, may not know, in that because the hospital refused you a post-mortem, you had the courage, you and your family had the courage to do many months of research into trying to get an independent post-mortem with yeah. an independent pathologist. But actually, this in reality is very difficult because yeah. finding an independent pathologist, funding an independent pathologist, instructing, legally instructing an independent pathologist, and then finding a facility it isn't a hospital mortuary or a coroner's office to perform the independent 
post-mortem is incredibly difficult. And so not only were you in a, a time of grief, your whole family, but you were also having to try to navigate your way around trying to fight for Stuart, even after his death, to bring some justice. Yeah. And I know because we walked this journey together and it's a journey that we've been walking for months and that people haven't been aware of. And we know that we've, we've fought and fought to try and get justice in, in some form, but it was impossible. And we had, we had to watch you grieve for, for Stuart, grieve for the situation and to try and project manage all of this. And, and I know from my point of view, it was extremely traumatizing having to watch you do that. But what I have to say to viewers and listeners is that many times I've talked about the amazing film that Dr. Vernon Coleman put out, Mrs. Caldecott's Cabbage War. And for those of you that have watched it, if I tell you that Eleanor is the nurse in Mrs. Caldecott's Cabbage War, she is the Thank real you. diamond nurse, the heroine, um, if you like. And I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds really cheesy, but I have so much respect for you and your family, Eleanor, and what you've been through because Thank nobody you. would know unless they've witnessed it. And I have. We've walked the journey together. So for those of you that haven't watched Mrs. Caldecott's Cabbage War, please watch it because Eleanor hasn't just gone through all of this with her family, which was extremely traumatic and continues to be traumatic. But then she felt she had to return to the care sector in order to educate others in what was going on so that it wouldn't happen yeah. to the people that she was looking after. So Eleanor, tell us what you've been doing since and why, and what you've been seeing as well, because I think people will find it quite fascinating. Well, I, I mean, you cannot have human justice, I can, from what I can gather, but, I think the best justice now for what happened with Stuart is educate people and just exposing what is actually happening and what is actually going on. So I did return working. I've been off for three months. I couldn't work, but I did, I did go back working and I did start talking and speaking out. Some people, they took it okay. Some people, they just cancel me you know but most of the people they are listening and it's so many people waking up to what is what is happening and what is coming and it's, it's it's just amazing and i'm thinking i'm saving if i save one life is your name that's the best the best thing and the best justice i can do so yeah that's my fight now no I can tell you, Eleanor, Spreading it's knowledge. a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more than that, isn't it? You are actually refusing to give um, drugs. Um, you've refused yeah. to sign. But the things that you're witnessing and, and, and the things that you're, I know that you're about to tell us with regards to GPs, because during mm. the pandemic, the public was seeing we we were seeing a coldness with gps but that wasn't what you were seeing was it you no. were seeing a very different picture with gps and yeah. please tell us what what you were witnessing 
Okay, so what is happening now with the GPs as a witch hunt? I am born in a communist country. I was 12 when Ceausescu was shot. So I can see the propaganda and I can recognize the propaganda. Okay. So these people, they've been a in a front line. They struggled so much and they've done a very good job. Yeah. So they, they've been in, a, in the first part of the COVID was the GPs coming out and treating people. They mess around really bad the plan. Yeah. The plan for, for the ones they try to, to call this calling of elderly. Yeah. Because they, these GPs, they've done a brilliant job and they refuse to send old people in a hospital and they treat them in the nursing homes. So they have done a proper job. Now, this witch hunt, hunt against the GPs is because of the new program is ready to be rolled out from next year. They are not needed anymore. They need to understand if they don't stand up and fight, they have no choice. They have no choice. They have nowhere to run and they have nowhere to, to hide. They need to stand up and fight, first of all, for themselves because they are, not, they are for sacrifice. I, I went to, to the last week, I went with my stepdaughter to see a doctor and I said, please put in, in the notes, we are not happy with the new, with the new program is rolling out. And he said, I'm so sorry. I, I understand we have 200 phone calls a day. Why? And it's just three or four GPs in the surgery. Why is that? Why you have just three, four GPs in a surgery? Because they are not allowed to, they are stopped to work. They are stopped to go around the houses, the nursing homes. They are forced to use the new program like face on FaceTime to do the, 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 you know, the appointments on FaceTime. This is ridiculous or on the phone. They, the government is stopped them to work and then vilify them. So they need to start to do their own research. I don't ask them to, to believe me. Just start to do your own research and start, start to, to, to see, to connect the dots and see what they are doing to you. In 1913, when Bilderberg took over America healthcare, what do you think happened with the doctors, with the old doctors? They've been in prison and killed. I'm not, this is not conspiracy theory. This is history. Please do your own research. They don't need you anymore. They want AI everything, primary care AI, end of. That's why they force you to take the, the, the jabs. But they didn't force the NHS doctors to take the jabs. That's very interesting, is it? But they force you to take the jabs. They force you to jab people. Do you really think average Mary or Joe will come after Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock? No, they will come after you with everything they have because you are the ones to jab average Mary and Joe. Please just, just stop watching BBC and start thinking and do your own research. The best way to fight what is coming and fight this evil is standing up and getting behind Dr. Carland, Dr. White, 
UK column, do your own research, gain knowledge, and then spread the knowledge. This is how we can win this and we can stop this. But you need to stand up. It's nowhere to hide and it's nowhere to run. It's, it's happening everywhere. It's not just England. So they want a soulless primary care, soulless primary care, because these people, they've been trained to gain trust. Is that sacred bond, which I like to compare with, you know, when, Debbie, when you are a child and you're poorly, that, that contact with your mother, the mother who takes care of you when you are poorly, it's transferring with your GP and your nurse from, from the surgery. This is what they are trying to destroy, that sacred bond, because these people are trained to, to create this, that sacred, sacred bond. I had old lady, an old lady, I told you the story before we start. She just creates such a, such a bond with one of the, the GPs from one of the surgeries. She was a young lady, this, this doctor, and she was calling her my angel. And every time when she was poorly, she wanted to see my angel. She didn't want to see any other doctor. No other doctor was good enough. And I think we are the same. I, I have one doctor I want to see. If I cannot see that doctor, I'm not going because I don't trust anybody else. So yeah, I, I you completely, don't, you and know you know, I mean. Eleanor, tell me, um, because one of the questions that I always had, and you can answer, I know, is when all of this was kicking off right at the beginning, we were not seeing GPs going into care homes. And you, you've told me that it was nurses no. that were going in. Nurses were going in and injecting people. But then yes. when people were dying, Tell us the procedure that you and anyone else in a care home had to go through in order to qualify uh, to certify a death. It's a 30 minutes uh, online training. You watch a video and then you answer 10 questions in the end. So certifying a death yeah, in a nursing home or whatever, you need two doctors after what happened with Dr. Schiffman. That one was erased. Now everybody can certify a death. Everybody is. Online, you go online, you do your training online, you tick the boxes and you're ready to go. Which I don't What's think What's the actual procedure, Eleanor? What, 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 actual what procedure actually is uh, listening the heart rate with a stethoscope for a couple of minutes, three minutes. Uh, then checking if the eyes, they have any uh, movement on reacting on light and then checking the respiration and then leaving the person where how, how, how that person is and go back half an hour. I, I used to go back three times just to be sure because I was petrified. I was sending somebody in a funeral home. And it's not, do you know what I mean? It's just petrified. Just the thought was, was horrendous. So, yeah, it's just listening. With Eleanor, a you're, you're a very experienced, you're a very experienced, trained nurse. And I think, am I correct in thinking that anybody could sign up 
and do this awesome. half an hour course. So you, it, you didn't, I mean, thankfully for you, for, you, for, the, for those that you certified, you have amazing qualifications and know what you're doing. But is anybody, could anybody do this? I suppose so. It's just online. It's a training online. 30 minutes training online. Because they, the wow. GPs are not allowed to come in the house. Why they are not allowed to come in the house? Because they can see too much. And it's not okay to wake up old. How many GPs we have in this country, Debbie? Now imagine all these people waking up on what happens and standing up and start fighting. Why do you think they are not allowed to? Why do you think they are overworked and they are not seeing the adverse reactions and they are not actually able because they don't have enough time to go and, and report this adverse reaction on theirs? Why do you think that it's everything against them and they need to wake up and see this? It's everything against them. It's a witch hunt against them. Just wait and see November, October, November, how the GP is going to be the GP's fault because the NHS hospital are overwhelmed with patients. But in the meantime, they are not allowed to do their jobs. Yeah? They need to see this. They must see this. I cannot understand why they are not seeing this. I it's think some of them are, Eleanor. Again, why they are not standing? It's nowhere to hide. It's nowhere to run. They, the, the only chance to survive now is to stand up and fight and, and do their own research. I think what is happening is a war. But also, I think what is happening is an IQ test also. And I think only the smart one you're going to survive, Debbie. If you just close yourself and you don't want to hear and you don't want to see these cognitive dissidents, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. We're going no, down Eleanor, and down and down. I, I agree. However, what I, was, what, I, what I would say is that there are plenty of very highly intelligent people out there that are completely or appear to be completely oblivious. So... I'm not sure it's IQ that you need. I think it's good old-fashioned common sense and human touch and, you know, remembering the days that we trained when to take somebody's pulse, you would hold their wrist because you would have to, you would have to take notice of rate, rhythm and volume. You wouldn't just look at a screen. A screen's not going to tell you anything. Mm -hmm. The human contact is what we need. And, and on UK Column for many, many months, We've been talking about remote wards and remote nursing and using um, AI uh, all through the NHS, digitizing yeah. the NHS to the fact where hospitals, as we knew, knew them, are gone and that we won't be able to, yeah. you know, pop into a hospital and visit a relative with a bunch of flowers and a bunch yeah. of grapes and sit by their bed anymore. That isn't what a hospital is about. A hospital appears to be more of a, um, a secure institution with surveillance and staff that you don't know who yeah. they are and a very a very scary place to be and in in my day and in your day i know 
because, you know, I am older than you, but we trained, we've got the same moral compass and we were trained yeah. in the same way and we have souls in that the hospitals and places like the NHS are meant to be safe places for those that we love, for ourselves and those that we love. And it seems to me now that the word safe has completely gone out of the window and everything that we yeah. were trained to do is alien. I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, gosh, we've got through an awful lot today and we may even have to have part two, Eleanor, because I know there's so much more to what you're witnessing now. But suffice to say that you're struggling to get work because you won't comply and because yes. you won't do certain things. And yet there are so many people out there that need nurses like you um, that is going to question everything. And I just want to thank you so much for being there, not just having to go through an absolute, well, the grief, unbearable grief with, with your own family, with your soulmate, but to have to go back straight, it's, it's like escaping from a fire and then running back straight into it. But you're doing it to educate others and to pass the word around. And also you're saving lives because what you're doing, and, and I must tell people this, is that doctors are, are asking you, Eleanor, what do we do? You know, do we put this person on an end of life care yeah, plan? And you're saying... Nurse. But you're saying, yeah. no, stick them on some antibiotics and a nebulizer and let's see how we go. Yeah. So just let's yeah. finish on this amazing positive note. What are you telling doctors to do, Eleanor? So you have these GPs coming, which I respect very much. And I feel for them because I can see their struggles. And they see this person maybe once every six months. But I am with them maybe every week. So... The GP will ask me, well, nurse, i supposed to put this person, the protocol says to put this person on end of life. Bear in mind, I know GPs, they refuse to put somebody on end of life and they refuse to put in the NRR in place. So let's be honest, yeah? So I, I, I used to say, just, just let's see 10 days of antibiotics and some nebulizer, how it's working, and then we're going to decide what we're going to do next. And this is what we have done during COVID. That's why the death toll was not as expected. And that's why these people, they're going to be punished because they actually, they actually mess around with the plan. Wow. So, Eleanor, you've been saving lives unbeknownst to everybody. And I'm sure I hope you so. are not alone. And there are other people um currently in the care some, so many amazingly good people in the care industry and to so to see for you to allow us to see what's going on behind closed doors is both a privilege and and eye-opening too um to know that doctors are asking you what to do and you're giving such amazing advice and and i know eleanor that many of those patients that you recommended antibiotics and nebulizers to are still here today am i right yes 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 yeah they're still so with what us. an amazing achievement so you really are the nurse out of mrs caldicott's cabbage war you really are i hope um, so eleanor I'll just give you a couple of minutes just to to finish up and 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 just 
just finish up and, and tell us how you feel things are going to go forward and the message for GPs out there and the message for also for care staff that are doing what you're yeah. doing. Stand up and just get together and fight because a very dark winter is coming. We need we need to stand up together and and put an end of this plan, evil plan. And the only way to fight this is like I said before, I just do your own research, um, gain knowledge and then spread knowledge. The most beautiful proof of love for one each other as human beings is spreading the knowledge. So please, please stand up and talk. Don't be scared, don't be afraid because is the all you have left is fighting back. All you have left is fighting back. Eleanor, and I love you all. You. And we love you too. And I think you're going to find so many people are sharing the love that we have for you. And condolences to you, for your, all your thank family. You. And thank you so much for being so brave and talking up. And please continue to speak up. And I know that for sure, anybody watching UK Column are remaining in contact with Eleanor and her family, as we have done for many months. And I'm sure we'll be speaking to Eleanor again. So, wow. Thank you, Eleanor, so much. And thank um, you, Debbie. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, and thank you so much to everybody that's been watching. And if you've been moved by this interview, um, please share it as much and as widely as you can. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.